0: Okay, with that, we'll go into Matthew chapter 2. And of course, last week we were looking at in Matthew chapter 2, we started off and we saw the wise men coming to worship Jesus. This week we see what happens because of that as Herod now tries to destroy uh, the Messiah again after the wise men uh, failed to give him what he wanted. So we'll start in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew 2, 13. Now when they had gone... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, He became very enraged, and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, may you give us open hearts and minds to what you would have us to see. May we know you better and be strengthened through your Holy Spirit today. May these words not be mine, but yours. And we ask your blessing upon this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Here we are back in Matthew chapter two. And so far in Matthew, we've seen two distinct fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. And so you'll see where Matthew says, this happened to fulfill this prophecy that happens in the book of Matthew 10 different times. And, and, and it's important in that Matthew has a very distinct purpose in writing this book is to convince Jewish people who already accept the old Testament as the word of God, that Jesus is their, their Messiah that they've been looking for. And so, um, he, he over and over pulls back in to the Old Testament and says, this is, this is the prophecy that this fulfills. So that's why, he's, that's why he does this. And in this passage today, we're going to see the next three of those times come one right after the other in rapid succession. And, and I think anytime Matthew does this, it's important that we look at it and figure out why. And it divides the, the text into the way we're going to kind of study it today. Um and, and and so in this text we're gonna have three fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy and and in into this division. Now, um overall, what do we see in this text? We all know the story. He, Joseph is is the wise men have come, they've said they've they've come and worshiped Jesus, but they were supposed to go back to Herod, so that Herod could then, we all know, is gonna come kill Jesus. Um and then the angel comes, tells, 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 tells uh, Joseph, hey, you've got to get your family down to Egypt and go back. What is the point of this story? Overall, what I see here is God protecting Messiah. God protecting his son, Jesus Christ. And, and we have a concept that we use to describe God moving events and, and intervening in order to do and accomplish his purpose and his plan. And it's called God's providence. Um, in, in, In hundreds of years ago, you would hear the great Puritan preachers talk a lot about God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's moving in history to accomplish his purposes. And that's what we have going on in this passage overall. We have God reaching down to a family to make sure that this man, Herod, who wants to kill the baby Jesus doesn't get the chance to do that. And so as we examine this passage today, in the light of the prophecies that Matthew brings in, what I want us to look at is how God works. And when we see God working in our life, it providentially moving things into place, how can we react to that? And how can we accept? God's purpose and God's plan and God's providence. There's a definition of providence that I really like, and it's this. Providence may be defined as that continuous exercise of the divine energy, of God's energy, whereby the Creator preserves all His creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. In other words, God is always working to accomplish His purpose and his plan. And he uses and works inside each of our lives in order to do that. So now let's get into the passage. We'll start here, obviously, with verse 13. It says, now when they had gone, that's the wise men they had left, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Now, what do we see here? We, we've already seen this happen kind of before. This is the third dream in the book and in the, in, in, in the two chapters that we've studied of Matthew. And it's also the second appearance of the angel. And he's going to appear a third time at the, as, we, as we finish up this passage today. Um, And and what we see here is that God is taking sovereign action to preserve Messiah. Now, uh, where did he tell them to run to? This was a natural choice. It was Egypt. Um, And at first glance, you might think, well, why in the world would he tell them to go to Egypt? Well, number one, it's not anywhere near where Herod could get them. Herod wasn't in charge in Egypt. Herod was only in charge of Judea, Judah, basically Israel. And so he was the king over that section but he had no control in Egypt. So if you go down to Egypt, he can't he has no s- control down there. So he can ask them nicely if they'll give you up, but they probably won't. So that's the first reason why Egypt was a good, good choice. The second was it was close. You have Israel up here and you have Egypt down here and it's it's not a huge journey. I mean, it's a couple days maybe by foot by by with your donkeys and all that other stuff, but it's not a huge journey to get to Egypt from Israel. So it's a close place you can go and get out of the way of this man trying to kill you. But I think there was a third reason that I didn't even realize until I started studying this, and that was there were already about a million Jews Living in Egypt at this time. in 40 AD Philo, the historian, actually uh, uh, wrote down that there were about a million Jews living in Egypt um, just from different things that had led them there. And so you have a huge Jewish community. So moving from uh, the town of Bethlehem that was only about 500 to a thousand at this time, it's not a very big town, to this huge community of Jews, even if Herod could send his people into Egypt, you'd have a lot better chance of hiding out and not being found if, you, if there's a million of your kinsmen around that you can hide in. So um, that's, that's why Egypt was the natural choice for this. The other thing that we see here is while the angel came to Joseph and told Joseph as the, 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 as, as the head of that household to take your family and move down to Egypt, the interesting thing is that in the text, the focus isn't on Joseph and it's not on Mary. God wasn't providentially moving to protect Joseph and Mary. And now, do you think if Herod had found the Messiah, had found Jesus, and had put him to death, that he would let Joseph and Mary live? No, there's not a chance in the world that Mary and Joseph were going to walk away from that encounter alive. So in the, by moving to Egypt, Joseph and Mary were protected, and they came out of it alive. But the focus is on Jesus, he says, "Take the child and his mother to, uh, they take the ch- and he took the child and his mother. The natural way of saying that when you 're talking about a baby is usually the mother and her child, the mother and her child, the father, the mother and father and their children it 's not to focus on the children first, and but the reason is that it is very clear from the text that God is moving in history he 's providentially moving things to accomplish his purpose of saving this little baby who would be the Savior of the world and who was born Messiah, King of the Jews, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we know from reading this that the point, the focus of all of this was saving the Messiah. Here's the interesting part about this. This command is urgent. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody comes to me, I'm sleeping, it's dead middle of the night, and you're at your house and all of a sudden you had an angelic appearance and it said, hey, get up, get out of bed right now and get in your car and throw whatever you can take in your car and drive to North Dakota. Because that'd be about like, at I, I, first I said South Carolina, but I kind of feel like it's more like North Dakota. So drive to North Dakota and just and, and just go there. I'll tell you when you can leave North Dakota, but just go there. And by the way, get up now and go do it there might be a little hesitation. It's like, really, God, do I not have like six more hours of sleep here so I can actually get a good night's sleep before I have to get in the car and go drive all that way or before I have to walk with a donkey uh, to to get all this stuff or, you know, I have a few things in this house. It's not like I can just leave them. But God, it, it, it's very clear by the language here, get up, take the child and his mother and flee. Not get up and go in the morning, not get up and go at the time you choose Because God, here's the first truth that we see about God's providence happening here. It's that God's providence doesn't happen on our schedule and in our timeline. God's providence happens when God knows he needs to move something. And that is a hard truth for someone like me to accept because I want things to happen on Ben's timeline. And I want things to happen tomorrow or now or last week. And so when you're in, you know, sometimes God puts us in a place where it's, we, we feel like we're just sitting there treading water and we're like, okay, Lord, I, there's gotta be a plan for this. Maybe it's not even a, maybe it's a miserable situation. And you're like, well, yeah, it's providing money. It's providing, it's, it's what I need, but, but God, I know you've got something else. And God is sitting there saying, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. You need to wait. And that's when it gets really difficult to wait and trust God that he has a plan and he has a purpose that's bigger than all of this. And I can imagine that when Joseph hears this message, he's saying, God, really? I mean, I understand he's trying to kill me, but can I have 12 hours? Can I get a little more sleep? Can I get some time to maybe make some arrangements with some people in Egypt? But God says, no, this is the plan. You get up and you go now. And if we trust God with our lives, then we can trust his schedule. And we can trust His timing on things. And so the first truth is that God's providence doesn't happen on our schedule. And then we come to the first fulfilled prophecy that goes along with this. Now, here's the thing about these prophecies. As I started going through this, on the surface, these prophecies don't always make sense. And so we're going to try to dig into them a little more. And I'm going to try in my um, limited way to explain what Matthew's trying to say When he brings these Old Testament passages in and why he would use these particular passages. Because sometimes they're they're from parts of the scripture that don't make a lot of sense. So in verse 15 it says, He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So, we know that God moved them on his timeline down to Egypt and said, okay, now it's time you need to move down here. And I'm not going to tell you for how long you're just going to do it. Um, That's a hard thing to do, but they accepted God's timing and God's plan. And, and, and their timing was remain there until the death of Herod. Now we all, if you remember from last week, Herod is pretty well hated by the people. And it's not because he didn't do good things. He, he actually, he rebuilt the temple. So the people of Israel liked that. Um, but by the end of his life, and he reigned for over 35 years. So by the end of his life, he is, he had gotten to the point where he was just kind of crazy. And he didn't want anybody taking over his throne. He was so fearful of it that he would kill anybody that got in his way or that he thought was a threat to him in any way. He would just have him put to death. Um, so he was kind of a scary individual that nobody wanted to cross and he had started to tax everything and his, the taxes that he levied were extremely harsh. And so he, the people, there was not a lot of love lost when Herod died. Um, and so it was, it brought relief to many people and Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus were one family that it brought relief to because they could now leave Egypt. Um, And he says, Matthew goes on to say that this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the prophet here that he's talking about that we're going to look at for a few minutes is Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, and it's actually verse one, but I want to read through verse four to kind of get some context of what's going on in Hosea and what it means for what Matthew is trying to convey here. And so we look at Hosea chapter 11, and in verses 1 through 4, it says, "...when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called him, the more they went from him. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk." I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Now, this does not sound at all like a prophecy of Jesus going to Egypt and then coming out of Egypt. It mentions Egypt. It talks about the sun going down, but it's not talking about the Messiah. Hosea never intended it to be prophetic. And no um, no teacher of, Israel, of, of, of Jewish teacher had ever taken it to be a prophecy for the Messiah. So why is it that Matthew brings this little passage from Hosea up and says, this is to fulfill what Hosea said, even though Hosea was not speaking prophetically at that point. Because what Hosea was saying was, he, he's, he's pleading with the people to turn back to God. And he's saying, look what God has done for you. He took you out of Egypt. He took Israel, my son. That's what he calls Israel. You're my son, my children. You, I took you out of Egypt. I gave you your own land. And you failed. And even after all that I loved you, you kept failing me. And you turned and worshipped Baal. And you turned and worshipped Astaroth. And you started worshipping and serving all these other gods after what I did for you. And he said, even then, I taught you how to walk. I took you in my arms. But they, you didn't even know that I would healed you. It's God speaking to his people and saying, look what I did for you in the past and yet you don't even trust me enough to turn back to me and quit worshipping all these other gods. And so in Hosea we have this beautiful picture of God's love for his people. And ultimately what he's going to say if you continue reading Hosea, he's going to say by the, he's going to end it with Assyria is going to take you over and destroy you. But he precedes all of that to say if you would just turn your hearts towards me, I wouldn't have to punish you, but I want you to come back to me. So everything I do is to draw you back to myself. Sending Assyria against you is to draw you back to myself because I have a purpose and I have a plan for you and I will accomplish it even if it takes punishing you to do it. And so that's, that's this beautiful picture of love that we find in Hosea. And then Matthew draws this in as a prophecy. So what is he doing? There was a, even though there wasn't a prophetic aspect in Hosea's mind, Matthew picked up on something that Hosea was saying. Hosea was using the fact and pointing out the fact that in the Old Testament there had always that there was always this use of the Son of God, and it had applied in a very general sense to the Israelites as a group. And then later on in the Old Testament, we see it applied to David and to his line of kings after him as children of God. Matthew's drawing on that analogy, using that, and I think he's using it to to kind of keep the continuity. Remember, his goal here is to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. Jewish people knew that the Son of God motif, the theological motif there, had always been used to refer to the messianic line, to them as God's chosen people. Matthew is now using that same motif, um, prophetically pulling it in from Hosea. Um, And and so he's he's using it, whereas Hosea uses the Son of God metaphorically to speak of Israel. Now Matthew draws it in to, to show that the ultimate Son of God is this little baby boy, who's now God is providentially moving into Egypt and then providentially moving him back out of Egypt in order to preserve and protect the true and living Son of God. And I believe that... As, as he was bringing this in, he brings this fuller meaning to Hosea's thoughts, whereas Hosea could only see what he was saying, that he was saying, hey, in the past, God did this and look how much he loves you. Matthew is drawing on that same thing and saying, look how much God loves his people. He loves you enough that here's the ultimate son of God, the true son of God, the Messiah that you have looked for all of this time. And in the perfect plan and in the perfect time, God sent him into the world. And even when it looked like a human being was going to destroy him, God providentially protected him because he loves you as God's chosen people. He loves the world so much that he moved the Messiah to Egypt and moved him back into Israel at the perfect time in order to preserve the Messiah so he could ultimately show his love to the entire world. Because ultimately what Jesus Christ was here for was not just to show his love to one group of people, but as John 3.16 tells us, God loved the whole world in this manner that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so he preserves and protects Jesus Christ And then we come into verse 16 and he says, Then when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because... This is one of those passages that there are people who will try to say, well, this just proves the Bible can't be trusted because there's no historical basis for um, any sort of, we don't have any records of any babies being killed in Bethlehem but on, on large scale numbers and, and a king and Herod doing this. It's not in the history books anywhere. And, and you would think it would be a small number, but there was an article in Newsweek uh, on Christmas Day I think it was or before whatever. And and they had um it was basically an article telling why you shouldn't trust the Bible and why it why it's uh completely uh false and 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 how and the only people of course they interviewed were 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 people like Bart Ehrman from uh Duke Seminary who's who's never accepted the Bible as truth. And and so it was very lopsided, very one-sided and but it basically said this kind of thing. Well, you can't trust the Bible because historically we don't have any proof that Herod ever did this. We don't have any proof that this was here. We don't have any proof that this was here. And it may seem like a small thing, but it's not. And if you ever start to hear that kind of thing and doubt what the scripture is and doubt that you can hold the authority of the scripture, know that there are very good explanations for that. And one of them is here that you have to understand when you read something like this, and we look at it and say, wow, he, ch- he killed all the children who were under two in this huge city. Bethlehem is a city of 500 to 1,000. Valley Center has more people than that, and Valley Center is a small area in San Diego. Valley Center has more than 1,000 people in it. Um, the, there there 's not too many cities that only have a thousand people in the u s that would be like some tiny, tiny little back country city of you know just a few people really and so you you have a city that only has five hundred to a thousand people in it. If you take everybody in that city and you think about, okay, well, how many of those people were in their childbearing years who had two year olds to newborns that, and they only they could only he only did it to the boys. You're really only talking about about twenty, about twenty people, maybe. Now I'm not saying that's good. If you kill one, that's bad. And in our culture today, with the news media, the way we have it, and 24-hour news cycles, and, and history being written on a daily basis on the internet, I mean, if this happened in a town, I don't care how small the town is in the U.S., it would be huge news as it should be. But you have to understand. Herod's son, the guy that Joseph ran, Joseph at the end decides, hey, I'm not going to go here because I don't want to deal with this guy. Joseph probably didn't want to deal with him because the month after he came to sit on the throne in that first couple of months, he killed 3,000 people just to keep them from being a threat to his reign. In fact, it was so bad that um, in order to go against the king that came after Herod in that section, the Jewish leaders at the time went and appealed directly to Caesar to have him removed from his throne and someone else put on the throne because he had killed all those people and was just a complete tyrant. And and it happened. They actually removed him, and, and later on um, he wasn't king anymore. So you have to understand that 20 people on the scale of what these guys would put to death on a weekly or a monthly basis, was almost nothing. And they held the power of life and death to say, if you, didn't, if you looked at them wrong, they were gonna die, you were going to die. And so, as bad as it is, that's probably why we don't even read about it in a history book, because that's what really happened. So now, he goes on, though, because we're looking at it, and on the one hand, you can say, well, this is why it didn't get writ- written in history, but do you think to those 20 families who lost a child, that it was a small and insignificant event? Absolutely not. Because God sees and hears even the smallest, most insignificant pain and sorrow. And I believe that's what's going to happen as we move into into the next prophecy here. It starts in verse 17 and it says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. There's two aspects to this prophecy. I think they're both important, but one speaks to your heart, and the other one speaks to your head and how it fits in Scripture. I want to look at the first one, and that's the theological aspect of this. Jeremiah is where this is taken from. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Jeremiah is named three times in the book of Matthew, and then he's never spoken of again in the entire New Testament. He's, he's important in, in, in Matthew's gospel, uh, and, and then um, he, they, no other New Testament writer ever uses him as a quote from the Old Testament. And in the context of Jeremiah thirty one fifteen, this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The focus here is on the context of Jeremiah and what's going on in Matthew. Now, in Jeremiah, what has just happened is the people of Israel have just been sent into exile. When they were sent into exile into Babylon, the the whole group wasn't moved. They only took certain ones of them. If you remember the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so they they only took the best of the best. They sent them all away. And so the context is that these, these mothers... The, uh, the these and and they he uses Rachel as like representative of all the mothers of Israel, but but the, the the context is they're weeping because their children have been taken away from them forcibly, moved all the way over to Babylon, which is over in Iraq, so it's it's a far distance, and 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 they have been and they've been forcibly removed, so they're not there with their families anymore, and so the context is these weeping mothers for their children who have been sent into exile. So that's what's happening in Jeremiah. Now, what go, what what else goes on past that? So in Jeremiah, he goes on and he ta- starts with this weeping due to the exile. But then he goes on in verse 20 to talk about Israel and Ephraim being his dear son, this is God speaking, whom he yearns to have mercy on. And so God is saying to Israel, I hear you're crying. You're crying because all of your children, your children have been taken away from you. And then just like in the passage that we read in Hosea, God is saying it's for punishment, but I care about you. And I, and I, and I, and I, I, I want to have mercy on you in the middle of this crying and this suffering. And then he goes on and he, and he, and he kind of ends the chapter in Jeremiah there in verses 31 through 34, where he talks about a new covenant. And he says that one of the things that can give them hope in the middle of this suffering is the fact that there is a new covenant, a Messiah, a the promised one who will come, and that that's when the tears will end because ultimately all their suffering, everything that the people of Israel have been through over all of that time is ultimately to send the Messiah. And then he will, and then as we know, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, obviously they, 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 they didn't see what all was being said there, but that's the prophecy. That's what he was saying that this new covenant would come. Matthew had already started talking and kind of tied into the exile. In in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he makes a point in the genealogy to say, before the exile, this person was king. After the exile, then this person had this person, this person had this person, and on down. So Matthew's already brought up the fact that the exile happened. Now he draws in Jeremiah in the context of the exile, and he uses it and the women's tears to apply here to these babies crying. And I think what he's trying to say theologically here is, remember back in Jeremiah, I promised you that the tears would end when the Messiah had come. Well, now here's the Messiah. And this last group of women who is crying because their babies have been destroyed are crying and it's the last tears that are going to be cried because this baby Jesus whose life was saved by the death of these other little ones, is the Messiah. And so theologically, he is tying it all together and saying, this Jesus is the one you're looking for. The one who will end all tears. The one whose reign, whose purpose I am protecting, is this little baby Jesus. So that's the theological, but what's the practical here? Because ultimately in Jeremiah, it's about... Here's the tears, but I care about you and I love you. And this coming Messiah is to wipe away all of your tears and to end the crying and the pain and the suffering. And I think when you read this, you see the practical side of it. It says, a voice was heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. I believe what he's, what he's also pointing to is the fact that Um, because the second truth we see here about God's providence is that God's providence doesn't mean that there's going to be a lack of painful suffering, but it does mean that when we go through that suffering, we have a knowledge of his constant presence and care. God knew what those women were going through, what those families were going through. I cannot imagine how painful it would be to lose a child. I've never had to go through that. Thank goodness. I I know what it what it was like to go years not able to have a child, but to actually lose a child. My my sister in law has 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 lost a lot several um, babies uh, in in miscarriages, and every single one of them is painful. No matter how many times she's gone through it, and. And, and for those who have had to go through that painful experience, I can't even imagine the suffering that you have to deal with. And for these women, there in Bethlehem. These families in Bethlehem, as the soldiers are coming up to their door and they, dis, they, they kill their, their, their newborn baby, the same age as my son, Bradley, I, I can't imagine what that's like to go through with that. And yet Matthew goes out of his way, not to just make a point and say, okay, all the babies died, but to make this point that this weeping was heard. Who hears that? God heard it. Yes, it was God's providence that moved the Messiah out and kept the wise men from going and telling Herod. So Herod came in with this this overkill in order to try to destroy the Messiah. And so in a way, God's providence allowed that to happen. But even in the middle of that sorrow and that pain and that suffering, we see a God who hears their cries. He hears their pain. He hears their weeping. He hears the fact that they can't be comforted. And he knows what they're going through and he cares about them, even though protecting the Messiah meant those people lost their lives. And to me... That's the practical message of this prophecy. That God cares about what you're going through. And yes, sometimes in order to accomplish a greater purpose for your life or for what He is trying to do in your family's life or in, 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 maybe even in, this, in, in your work situation or whatever, many times you're going to find yourself in a painful and a sorrowful situation. But in the middle of that situation, I think as we look at the scripture, we can know that God is there for us, even when he is the one who has allowed us to be there. He will never forget us. He'll never leave us. He will never forsake us. There's a few biblical examples of this. One of them that came to my mind as I was thinking this was David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the chapter where David has committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba. He sent her husband Uriah to the front lines, put him in a position where he would be killed, basically had her husband murdered. And then David David uh finds out that he marries Bathsheba to try to hide up, hide the fact she's pregnant. And then he's confronted with his sin, and he confesses and he repents of that sin. And and and, and so we come down to 2 Samuel chapter 12, 21 through 23. And after he's confronted with his sin, God tells David, because of your sin, that child that Bathsheba has is going to die. And, and David is just heartbroken over this. Even though he knows it was his sin that caused it, it was Bathsheba and him, that her, their sin that caused it, he's still heartbroken over it. And he's crying and pleading with God not to kill his son not to take away his son from him. And then we come down to verse 21, and it says, while the child, and this is his men coming to him, the men had came and said, David, your child just died. And and this was their response. They said, while the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now on the surface, that sounds pretty kind of, David's a stoic, like it's done. What's done is done. I have to march on forward, but I don't think that's what he's saying at all. David was telling his men, I know that God's a merciful God and I know that even though I have to be punished for my sin, and the way that God has t- already told me He's going to do it is to take this little baby away from me. But He said, as long as that baby's still alive, I can plead with God for mercy, and I can trust that my God is greater than any situation. And He said, I know that God loves me, and I can plead with Him. But somehow during that situation, when that baby died, God, even in the middle of punishing David, I believe, had given him an assurance. We don't have it in writing anywhere in there, but somehow God had given David an assurance that that little baby who didn't know what was going on, didn't know why David was being punished for his sin, that one day David would get to see his son again in heaven. That one day that little baby who suffered because of David's sin would be reunited with his father And be able to see him again in heaven. And somehow David had a promise from God that that was going to happen. And so I believe that even in the middle of that suffering. That God had very blatantly told David. I'm doing this to you because of your sin. David could still hold on to the hope that God knew exactly what he was going through. That God was going to preserve him and bring him through it. And give him a hope that ultimately that pain and that suffering would one day, even that pain and suffering that he caused to himself would be, would be pushed aside for the glorious occasion when he would be able to see that little baby in heaven again and be reunited with his son. If God can do that in the middle of a situation to a murderer and an adulterer who has blatantly disregarded God's laws, then do you think that God can give us hope? in situations that we have no control over, that are painful and hard and desperate, and we don't see any way out of them or anything that we did to cause them. And God says, I know exactly what you're going through. There's a verse that I I read at every funeral that I do, Psalm 56, verse 8. It says, you have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? When it talks about putting our tears in a bottle putting our tears in God's book. It means that he knows every tear that you've cried. He knows every painful memory that you have. And he's watching over you through that time. God allows people to die. He's allowed, he allows people to have to leave and move. He allows people to go through suffering, through cancer, through, through, through bad, horrible experiences, through family problems, But when we go through those and we're crying out and we're looking for a way out and we're hoping for a way out and we're praying for a way out, even in the middle of that, God is saying, it's not the right time yet, but I know everything you're going through and I care about what you're going through and I will help you go through it and I will support you while you're going through it. That's why in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says we can cast all of our anxiety on him because he is cares for us. Yes, God's providence is going to take us through some hard times. It's not always going to be an easy road. But when those times come, no matter whether we caused them, whether another person caused them, whether ultimately it's just God wanted us to become something different through that tough time, we can know that God cares for us. He knows what you're going through. He loves you. And you can cry to him, you can argue with him, you can bring your anger to him, you can bring your questions to him, and he's not going to turn you away, and he's not going to throw you away. Because he loves you, and he cares for you, and he wants to be there to help you during those times. So God's providence doesn't mean a lack of painful suffering, but we have the knowledge of his constant care. So what ultimately happens? Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Remember I said the reason he didn't want to go there and the reason that God warned him is because this guy was worse than Herod, if you can imagine. He was going to kill 3,000 people in one fell swoop. He pro- Jesus's life probably still would have been in danger. Um, and, and, but he says, I'm, I'm moving you to this city called Nazareth. And then we read this, this was spoken by the prophets that he shall be called a Nazarene. So if I gave you a concordance and you were to look up Nazarene, guess what? You wouldn't see a single reference to he will be called a Nazarene anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not there. And so when I've, when you first read this and then you understand that this isn't in the Old Testament. But Matthew, but Matthew says clearly this fulfills a prophecy. Well, I have to ask, Matthew, you got this wrong. What is wrong with you? You can't quote something that's not in the Bible and say it's Bible. So what is he saying here? On the surface, he's just saying, "Okay, he's going to live in a place called Nazareth and be called a Nazarene." But you have to understand what a Nazarene was looked at at that time. Nazareth was kind of like your, kind of like your back hills of nowhere, kind of your, uh, you know, it was your, um, you know, oh, those are the guys from the other side of the tracks. Those are your cousin Marion, kind of. We those are in our family tree, but we pushed them over to the side. Yeah, we don't. Oh, he's a Nazarene. I get it. I understand. It's kind of like, you know, I mean, I don't know. Around here, I guess it might be, I, there you go, Bakersfield. Something like that. You know, oh, those are the Bakersfield cousins. <laughs> we don't, we we know about that. That explains a lot right there. That's how Nazareth was looked at. Okay, where I'm from, it'd be like, oh, they're from Pickens. Okay, I got gotcha. you. They're a bunch of hillbillies. All right. Um, so that's kind of what it was like. And so when he says he will be called a Nazarene, it's not, it's not a, okay, he's going to be from, he's a San Diegan. No, it's a, oh, he's that guy. He's the guy that we, won't, we don't want to spend time with. We despise him. Well, so while the words he shall be called a Nazarene are nowhere in the Old Testament, guess what is in the Old Testament? There's a whole lot of prophecy that talks about how the Messiah will be despised by his own people. And so I, one thing that just, i I've I, I just thrown out one verse here, but there's several. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 22 is a passage all about the suffering Savior. And it's a beautiful, poetic um, uh, psalm that shows that the Messiah, Jesus, will come and will suffer and be put to death um, uh, and, and, and that that's the kind of Messiah. Now the Jewish people didn't accept that, and they would they were obviously looking for a king and would not have seen the suffering Savior as being the Messiah. But that's what Psalm 22 is all about. And in Psalm 22 six through eight, it says, "But I am a worm and not a man." a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. And you can just hear in their voice the sarcasm. Oh, yeah, he says he's of God. Let God save him. That's exactly what happened at the cross, isn't it? As Jesus is hanging there and the soldiers and the people around say, he said he was God's person, let God save him off of this cross. And so when you read the Old Testament, what you see is a picture of the Messiah. That he's going to be despised and rejected by his own people. And so when Matthew says God moved him into this place called Nazareth, it wasn't so that people could come and look at him and say, wow, you're the perfect king. You have the great, the, you, you're from this great city called Nazareth. No, he moved in there because ultimately he was going to be despised. He was going to be looked down on. He was going to be called a Nazarene and rejected by his own people, put to death on a cross so that we could have salvation. And so the third truth that we have here is that God's providence doesn't always mean human acceptance even when our lives are perfectly centered in God's will. You could wake up every day, live your life exactly the way God wants you to, doing everything perfectly and yet have everyone around you hate you, despise you, and not want to have anything to do with you because you are doing exactly what God has called you to do. Ultimately, God's providence doesn't promise us a great life where everyone loves us and where the life is perfect and we are without sorrow and without pain and have everything when we want it, how we want it. But what God's providence does promise us is that he has a purpose and he has a plan. And if we can trust that purpose and if we can trust that plan, then we can see him do what he wants to accomplish with each one of our lives. When I was thinking about this, and I was reading this chapter, and here in this chapter is we've seen God move providentially to protect the true heir to David's throne. Herod thought he was the heir to David's throne. But the heir to the true heir to David's throne was this little bitty baby born in a manger who everybody nobody really knew and everybody was going to hate. And God providentially moved history in order to protect that little baby from the usurper Herod. Here's the downside of God's providence. Most times when we, when we see God's hand moving, it's not because we look around and go, wow, God, you're doing great things and I'm miserable, but I know you're doing great things in my life right now. That's not the way it works. It's usually because I like to call it, we're looking in a rearview mirror and we look back and we say, wow, Man, I didn't like that at all, but look what you did because of that. And man, I hated that, but oh man, you, you did something great here. And so I started thinking about my own life, and it, and it's so easy to see God working It's it, when we see behind the scenes. When we read Matthew, we see behind the scenes, and we're like, well, of course I can see that. God was protecting the Messiah. Well, think if you're Joseph and you get woken up in the middle of the night and you're scared to death because you have a wife and a child to protect and you're told, go down to a place you've never been before and just stay there until I tell you to move again. And then God comes to you and says, move back, but there's still somebody trying to kill you. So move over here and grow up in a place where you don't know anybody and and people are going to despise you. And yet you still trust God. We can trust him because we look at that. What about our own life though? And as I looked at my own life and I, and, and I had to ask myself, was it Providence when in ninth grade my dad had just died and my and, and, well a couple years before that. And, my, and, and in ninth grade, my mom came to me and said, this school you've been going to for 10 years because it's a Christian school. So I'd gone there with my friends and I knew everybody. We've been going together the same class of people for 10 years. And my mom came and said, uh, yeah, you're going to move to this other school because I think it's better for your brother. Um, and I know you're happy here, but your brother's not. So we're going to move you over here. And I'm looking at her, going, "I hate this. I was miserable. I came home crying after my first couple of days there. It was like, I hate this place. I just want to leave." It was, you know, I went from a school of about a 200 to a school of thousands, and and it and I hated it. Was that God's providence? It was miserable. But three years later, in junior English class, when I met my wife, who would become my wife five years later, yeah, I think that was God's providence. Was it God's providence when? 9-11 happens and I'm in seminary and, 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 in, and working at a church and, and I'm in the Marine Corps. And, and I always told my wife, if, if a war breaks out, that's it. I'm, in the, I'm a Marine. That's what we do. We fight. We go to war. I'm going to war as a Marine. And so I begged and I pleaded and I put my request in and got turned down time after time after time after time to go to Iraq. And then finally my name gets on a list. And then God, God somehow knocks my name off that list. And finally I just had it and said, forget it. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do what I was already planning on doing and join the Navy and forget the whole Marine Corps thing and and uh, a day one day after I sworn to the Navy I get a call and said hey Stasson Howard do you still want to go to Iraq seriously if you would have called me 24 hours ago uh, it would have been a different answer but I'm not in the Marine Corps anymore I'm in the Navy now but God used switching to the Navy and becoming a chaplain for nine years. To give me some of the most amazing experiences of my life, and then last year when the Navy came and said, "Oh yeah, but you didn't get promoted fast enough, and you didn't make this board, so yeah, you got to get out of the Navy now," and I'm sitting there going, "But I love this job, and I really don't want to get out of the Navy. And why are you doing this, Lord? I thought this was what you wanted." And um, and then uh, was that providence too? I don't know. I've had a great year here at Valley Baptist Church and God has put me in a perfect church family for my family, and has given me uh, the perfect pastor to work for, and and, and, and a great group of people to minister to. Yeah, I think it was God's providence. And many times in our own lives, we don't take the time to see what God is doing, because it's so hard in the middle of the pain and the suffering and the not knowing to just reach out to God and say, God, I trust you, and I love you and I know that you have a plan and a purpose for my life because Romans 8.28 says that those who love God, that he is providentially causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose and a plan for your life today. Are you willing to trust him with that purpose? Are you willing to trust him with that plan? And live according, looking for his providence in your life. Let's pray. Lord, you have shown us in your word how you, in your providence, in your, in your greatness, you moved human history to protect your son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have an eternal relationship with God in heaven. Father, we look today to you to direct our lives. Father, we trust our lives to you. I pray that if there's one person here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would entrust their full life to you, the one who died on a cross for their sins. Father, we thank you that you care about each one of us no matter what we're going through, no matter how we got in that situation. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name, amen.